This is Boston. This is what I have been working for for like eight, nine years now. And I have had blood and sweat and tears for this moment. And I'm not going to rob myself of the joy because it's hot and because I'm going to struggle physically. I know I'm going to struggle physically. I know it's going to be difficult, but gosh damn it, I don't enjoy every single second of that race. I'm robbing myself of everything that I've worked for. And I knew this was my moment and I was going to run the entire race with a smile on my face, no matter how, how hard it was. Hello, podcast world. Welcome to episode 36 of Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. With the Boston Marathon registration opening last week, it was perfect timing to have Elizabeth Clore on Run Chats. Elizabeth is the author of Boston Bound, chronicling her seven-year journey to overcome mental barriers to qualify for the Boston Marathon. We discussed eating disorders, anorexia, therapy, perfectionism, the comparison trap, race times worrying what others think, Sports psychologist, process goals versus outcome, tackling race anxiety, and breaking through and sharing it all via her book, Boston Bound. For anyone that has ever wanted something so badly and short-circuited their efforts, this pod is for you. So many valuable takeaways. Hope you all enjoy the convo as much as we did, so let's dive on in and take a listen. Good afternoon, Elizabeth Kalor. Welcome to Run Chats with Ron Runs NYC. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Happy Sunday. And thanks for thanks for jumping on with me. I thought it'd be great for us to get together with Boston registration coming up in two days. I thought it'd be perfect for us to have a chat. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Sometimes the timing in life works out, right? I mean, sometimes we scramble to make it all fit and then sometimes it actually just comes together easily. So thanks for working with me um, so quickly. Um, so mostly pretty much every show, we just start with a little introduction, like tell the Run Chats audience, like, where did you grow up? What was life like growing up? And kind of when did you first get your introduction into sports? Sure. So I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia. I still live there today. So born and raised. Um, and I went to college at the University of Virginia. So I've, I've lived in Virginia my whole life. Um, what was life like growing up? Well, I was really into dance. My mother was a dance teacher. And um, since the age of three, she would be teaching dance classes and I would be like running around the dance studio. So I had a lot of exposure to that at a very young age. Um, so I was taking, you know, three probably three dance classes a week, uh, all throughout the elementary school, middle school, high school. In high school, uh, I joined the dance team, which was uh, my kind of athletic thing. Um, at the same time, I was also um, really interested in theater, drama, music, singing, all of that as well. So I kind of had a, a dual interest in high school and was involved in, in both of those. Um, but dance is actually sort of close to theater because it's all about performing and things like that. Um, but I didn't do any kind of, um, 
the more traditional sports. I didn't do running or, or soccer or basketball or anything like that in high school. Um, and then in college, kind of same thing. Um, I There weren't, weren't a lot of opportunities to dance. They, at UVA now, they have a dance team. They didn't have that while I was there. So um, while I was in college to keep active, I did step aerobics, actually. <laughs> that was kind of my favorite uh, favorite thing to do to keep active, just to sort of feel like I was doing something since I wasn't really dancing as much in college. And uh, really, I was kind of like dancing, right? Sort of like stepping up and down. There's choreography. There's a little bit of skill involved. So I uh, really enjoyed that. And then I didn't start running until after college when I was, I guess, 22 years old. And I had never, ever run like, you know, everyone in high school or most everyone in the public schools that is does that mile where you got to run a mile around the track. I don't know if they still do it, but um, we all had to do that. And I always dreaded that. Like for weeks, I would <laughs> dread the mile. But I... uh was actually not bad at it. And I think that was only because I was so afraid of it that I would start off running really slowly. Everyone else would like bolt out and they'd be sprinting out and I'd be like, to me, that was like a marathon. So I would start slowly. And I would say, I think I ran about like an 830, which was uh, considered good for someone who doesn't run ever. Um so let's see, how did I get involved into running? So uh, after college, then there was sort of really no more activities there, you know, the sort of step aerobics went away, kind of. So then I joined a gym and lo and behold, they had step aerobics as well. This was, when was this? This was, I'm going to date myself here. <laughs> this was, uh, I graduated college in the year 2000 and I joined the gym in the fall of 2000. And step aerobics was still really big then. And I went to this class religiously every Tuesday and Thursday night, and I loved it. But I had this expensive membership, and I didn't have a lot of money at the time. So I wanted to get my use out of the membership. So if it wasn't Tuesday or Thursday and it wasn't step, I figured I would use like the other gym equipment. And that's when I discovered the treadmill. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I... I think the first time I hopped on, I wanted to to try to run a mile to see how fast I could do it. I think I set the treadmill at like 5.5, which is maybe like a 1030-ish pace or something. And I was able to, to do it, but it was very, very, very challenging. And so um, the, the thing I liked about it was that, and this is kind of my personality, was that you could actually set a goal. It was very numbers. You had your time and you had your distance. So this was something that I could work towards. So every time I um, would go to the gym and it wasn't step aerobics, I would try to either run faster or run farther, usually not both at the same time. <laughs> Good, because that could have been an injury prescription Injury prescription, <laughs> yeah. right there. <laughs> so um, it wasn't long before, I mean, I think it probably took like three months to get myself up to like four, maybe five miles. And I was doing that at like, I'm going to say like a 6.5, uh, you know, nine minute mile for that. Um, and then I just, I was this um, gym rat. I did uh, the step aerobics classes ultimately ended. That person stopped, they stopped offering them, but I would do, I'd use all the machines. Uh, I'd go like literally five, six times a week. I'd use all the weight machines 
And I would run every time I went. So I was running five or six times a week on a treadmill. And I would probably do, I want to say like five or six miles. Um, Each time I did, it was also, it was also kind of about burning the calories for me back then (laughs) in my early twenties. I didn't really have a great idea of sort of what was healthy for me. And I just thought the more calories I could burn, the better. It honestly sort of went hand in hand with an eating disorder that I developed. All of this kind of developed at the same time when I started uh, eating less, which I thought was, I thought was healthier to eat less. All the fitness magazines at the time focused on cut your calories, eat fewer calories. They didn't really distinguish weight loss with Um, from health. And my goal was to be healthy, but everything I was reading was telling me that in order to be healthy, you have to eat less calories and sort of perfectionist goal oriented person that I am. I kind of fell into the fewer calories I eat, the better, the more calories I burn, the better, the less I weigh, the better. And I mean, I knew, you know, once I got to down to really low weight and I realized I couldn't stop (laughs) and I realized that all I did was think about food. I realized this was a problem but I didn't realize this, this was a problem until it was kind of consuming me, you know, for lack of a better word. So, you know, I developed this eating disorder when I was 20, 22, 23. It's a hard time. I mean, I don't think, you know, in society, we really talk enough about that transition between college and being thrust into the real world where you're essentially, you know, in college, your society is there for you. You have clubs, you have goals, you have your classes, everything is structured for you. And then you're set set free into the world and there's no, there's no structure. There's no sororities. There's no social life. Um, You can live where you want to do, wherever you want to have whatever job. And, and it's, and it's scary. And it's, um, it's a, it's an amazing time, but um, if you're not prepared for it, it can be very difficult making that adjustment. Um, and for me, it was difficult not having all of that structure and kind of not really knowing what to do with my life other than to have, you know, have the job that I had um, and not having like goals, not having, not trying to get a good grade, not trying to graduate. Like what was my goal? What was my purpose? And um, my career was fine. It just wasn't totally satisfying that need. So all of this kind of coming together at the same time was just the perfect storm for anorexia. And, and I just, and I fell right into it. So I suffered from that um, sort of at at my, like peeking at it for maybe two years when it was pretty serious all throughout, I'm going to say like 2001, 2002, 2003 is sort of when I tried to get help for it. But um, with the running on the treadmill, I actually did enjoy that. It wasn't kind of like a punishment for what I ate. I would, Actually, um, I loved the fact that I was able to run. And at this point, I was running a lot faster. I was running six or seven miles. I could do it at like an 8.30 pace instead of a 9.30. And I, and I really loved that. So while I wanted to recover from the eating disorder, I did not want to become unfit. I wanted to maintain the running. But it was kind of all entangled in there. So I had to sort of work to separate the two out. So that's how I got into running. And I did that for, I was like the gym rat treadmill runner for like five years. So I graduated college in 2000 and I sort of discovered the racing world in 2005. That whole time, it never dawned on me to to do like a 5K. 
I just, I don't think racing was as big back then. Not, you just didn't hear about people doing it as often. Marathoning, half marathons weren't as popular. And um, so I just kind of, it just didn't really cross my mind or seem like something that I wanted to do until um, I went to my five-year college reunion and there was a, a two-mile race for the for people. And my roommate, who I was there with, my college roommate, the, the two of us went together. She's like, why don't you do this? Uh, why don't you do this race that I just found in the program instead of going to the gym? Because, of course, I had planned to, to go to the gym while I was there. And I said, yeah, you know, that might be a, a nice change from the gym and might be fun. Okay, I'll do this two-mile race. <laughs> and had never having raced before. I got there and then there was this guy that was also in my graduating class and, and he was like a runner, like he was, he did races and marathons and everything. And so I started chatting with him, the race started and we just started chatting and, you know, we ran this two mile race. And when it was done, they like handed me this cup trophy thing. And they said, you're the female winner. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't even know that. Cause I was just chatting it up with this, with this guy. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. And then the guy that I was running with, he's also um, from the Northern Virginia area. And he told me that there was a 10K in Washington, D.C., like a big 10K. It was the Lawyers Have Heart 10K. And it was going to be the following weekend. And I said, well, how long is a 10K? I didn't even know. And he said, you know, 6.2 miles. And it's in D.C. And uh, there's going to be a lot of lawyers there. And, you know, I was single at the time. I'm like, oh, maybe I can meet someone. <laughs> that was kind of my motivation at the time. So I figured I'll do, I do like six, seven miles on the treadmill all the time. And this was fun. So that should be fun. So I did it. And this was, and this was like a huge race, much different from the little two miler. We got the little chip in your shoe. There was like, I don't know, 2000 runners. It was big. And it was, and it was hot out and I show up in my cotton shorts and cotton tank top and I don't use the bathroom beforehand, which ended up being a problem. <laughs> and I was just a total rookie at this race. <laughs> um, the pictures from it are, are pretty hysterical, but I ran, I had never run that hard because, you know, I wanted to, you know, it was a race. It was how hard can you do it? And plus that was also sort of like my max that I would do would probably be seven. So it's kind of like I hadn't really ever run much farther than that. Um, and I was trying to run it really fast and it was hot. So, um, so I did that and I, and I loved it. And then I checked the results afterwards and I sort of compared sort of where I was and I was in like the top 20% of women. And of course I was like, Ooh, you know, <laughs> being competitive, uh, like that's, that's pretty good. Um, and so then from there, it just kind of, um, escalated. I just was like, well, if I can do a, a 10 K, maybe I could do a half marathon. And, um, so from there I, I did a half marathon. My first half marathon was the rock and roll Virginia beach in 2005, which was just a few months later. Um, yeah. And man, that, that half marathon hurt too. And that was also a hot one, but I ran that half. I ran, my goal was two hours and I got two hours. Exactly. So that was my first half. And, and then from there, I had a friend that she said that she was going to do a marathon in May of 2006, and she had never done one before. And the two of us were about the same level. So I said, well, you know, if she thinks she can do one, there's no reason why I couldn't also try to do, do it. Um, so we did it together and we signed up for the Delaware marathon, uh, in May of 2006, which was, she, she had chosen it. So 
people are like, why Delaware? It's like, well, that's what she had chosen. And it was close and it was flat. And it was actually a really good one to be my first. And I really enjoyed it. And I ran a 446. And when I was done, I was like hooked. I had the bug. And so from 2006 till now, marathoning has been my thing. That is a great, I mean, that may be the longest start to (laughs) your beginnings all the way through up to your first marathon, but I absolutely love it. So we've got to, we got to work our way all the way back because you gave me so much in there and I want to make sure we spend a little time on each step. So cheers, cheers for step aerobics, man. So, you know, I I remember that whole phase and they were great workouts, man. I mean, there people were in there doing their thing. Awesome. And, you know, you got your start in dance and, you know, carried it through and um, were really involved with that, which is super cool. And, you know, your first run is on the, you know, track, like in high school, you know, and 830 is really good for like a high school mile when you're not a runner and you've never done it before because you weren't doing your whole step thing at this point. So that was, that was a pretty cool, you know, like first toe in the water situation. Um, I appreciate you sharing your struggles with food and anorexia. I had a guest on who actually won the virtual Boston marathon this year. And she talked extensively about her struggles with food and anorexia and how it really wrecked her college running career and a lot of relationships and just put her into such stressful situations with her family and other members. And um, I just appreciated so much how open she was on all of it. And, you know, now she's a mom of two and I think they're having their third and she won the Boston virtual. I mean, she ran her, her PR, she ran a great time. Um, she has it like all together and she, it just makes me happy to see that people can come through such a difficult experience like that and come out of it and be so healthy. So if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit, because you already shared that part to start with, like what helped you eventually like work your way through that and and move forward because obviously today you know you're strong you're healthy you're a terrific runner you look healthy obviously you've got that all completely not only sorted but you know way way beyond you in the past but these things that are in our past can sometimes come back so anything that you can share with anybody about how you managed to pull through that and get through that that would be really helpful yeah i so i i went to um multiple therapists, uh, when I first started, had to admit to myself, I couldn't deny it anymore that I had anorexia. I went to a therapist who I worked with for a year and just was not at all helpful, who just wanted to talk about my father and my childhood and just dig deep and none, and none of it went anywhere. Um, I sort of, I, I went on to online support forums, trying to understand how other people were recovering. And it didn't, it didn't really work. I mean, I, I sort of, the reason I wanted to recover was because I was a perfectionist and as a perfectionist, I couldn't have an eating disorder. So it's like, well, I got to recover from that, obviously. Um, so I was kind of at war with myself. The, the kind of breakthrough that I had was after a year of like being with the therapist, realizing that it wasn't work. I kind of just said, you know what, what's real about me is I actually like this eating disorder. I'm going through a hard time in my life for, for other reasons. When I have it, I feel numb. It makes me, it's a way to cope. I use it. I want to lose a lot of weight. And I kind of relapsed back down to a really low weight. And I kind of want to say I sort of embraced it. And I just, I just let myself be anorexic, which I know kind of sounds bad. But for me, it was, it looked like a step backward, but it was actually a step forward. 
because I had never allowed myself to be imperfect and to just be okay with it and to just sort of let myself do something that I knew was was wrong or bad for me. So I so I kind of got that out of my system and then I was at a low weight again and I had all the symptoms of being cold all the time, hungry. And I'm like, okay, now, now I really actually want to recover, not because I should, but because this sucks, like living like this, always, always just being hungry and just not having a life other than thinking about food. It really just, when you have anorexia, it's, it's, it's all encompassing. You can't enjoy life. All you do is think about what your next meal is going to be. So anyway, so this was, I guess, around 2004 timeframe. So what, what really helped me start to recover was that was also that 2005 was kind of when I got into racing and I decided that I really wanted to, I was going to train for a marathon. I needed to fuel for it and I started running more and I kind of just let go of the need to be a certain weight. I stopped weighing myself. I started focusing on eating healthy and even though I still didn't want to gain weight or be heavy, I mean, I know that I probably I did. Um, I just didn't weigh myself and focus on it. So my focus just shifted over to running. But what's interesting is that um, even though I recovered physically and I I went along, you know, 2000, um, by probably around 2007-ish, you know, I was running marathons, eating pretty much normally. Things were, things seemed kind of back to normal. I, I didn't really ever address that underlying perfectionism that much. And that's really what drove it was sort of needing to prove myself to myself and to other people, really caring about what other people thought of me. And those issues were still there. But instead of being focused on this unhealthy eating disorder, it was all focused on something that was seemingly healthier and more positive, which was marathon running. So I kind of just pushed all of that into running, (laughs) which created its own problems later on down the line. So I continued running marathons, you know, 2006, 2007, 2008. I met my husband in 2009. His name is Greg. And um, we got married in 2010. And that um, helped sort of normalize my eating even more because I don't cook. I don't really know how to cook. And usually my dinners were like, put a Boca burger in the microwave, microwave some chicken nuggets, have some oatmeal, have some cereal. So even though I was, you know, eating enough calories, it probably just, it wasn't the healthiest just because I wasn't like a cook and I didn't really have anyone to share the meal with. So I didn't really go to the trouble. So, um, so we were married in 2010 and he, at the time he had also just been getting into running. So it was something that we could share together. And uh, he ran his first big race, which was like the army 10 miler in 2010, uh, shortly after we got married. And I still had like kind of all these underlying issues that didn't really come out until I tried to qualify for Boston, which kind of brings us on to the, the next topic. Um, and that is when these issues sort of all sort of surfaced again, when I was trying and trying and trying, and I wanted it so badly and I couldn't do it. And this perfectionism came out in the form of if I didn't do well at a race, if I didn't get it, I would go into like this deep depression. I would cry. I would just, the sport started becoming not fun for me. It just became all about proving it. And I felt like I had to prove it to myself and prove it to the rest of the the world who I always felt like everyone was judging me because I was insecure. 
And so those issues were were really prevalent kind of in the 2010, 2011, 2012 timeframe, which is when I had the fitness based on my other race times. I had the fitness to run a BQ, which at that time was a 340. They hadn't lowered the standards yet. I had the fitness to do a 340. Based on all my other races and my training, it was just mentally I had these issues. It was this vicious cycle. So I would, um, I wanted it so badly that every time I would go to run the marathon, my mind would just get in the way of it. I was so anxious and nervous and I wanted it so bad that didn't matter how fit I was or how trained I was. When you have anxiety, it will raise your heart rate and it will literally make you feel like your easy pace is your marathon pace. So I would go run marathon pace for like eight miles and then at mile nine, I'd be like, oh, I'm done. Couldn't do it anymore. Whereas in training, I could run that pace for quite longer. And in training, I could run half marathons at like way faster than that pace, but couldn't do it because of the anxiety. And um, it all just stems back from the same thing that the eating disorder stemmed from, which was perfectionism and just caring too much about what other people think. That's really, that's really powerful stuff. Um and so it wasn't just affecting you with the eating disorder, but it's basically submarining, you know, you're running um, racing efforts, even though you're super fit and have performed and done key workouts and things that show you you're capable of doing X. But when the actual race would come to be, whatever that race was, um, you just couldn't, you know, you couldn't do it because as you said, with anxiety, it's basically like, you know, somebody's heart rate and their pulse rate goes way up and they're having trouble breathing, you know, because of anxiety. And, you know, somebody puts a brown paper bag over them, you know, when they're hyperventilating and it seems like that would be the most ridiculous thing to do to get somebody to calm down and start breathing normally, but it works. Um, and in this case, um, you know, you're, it's in your own mind way. It's nothing really about physical it's there. But this is something that tons and tons of people um, struggle with, not only in running, but in every single facet of their life. So this is really powerful stuff. Um, so where did you take it from there once you kind of made these discoveries? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the interesting thing is, too, when you're a beginner at something, when you're new, it's kind of like the honeymoon phase. Because when I ran my marathon in 2005, or sorry, 2006, and it was 446. And then I ran the next one and it was a 424 and I'm like, whoa, 20 minute PR. And then the next one was like, I want to say like a 411. You, when you're just starting out, like PRs just, they come like so easy because you have a lot of, of gains to make um, and you have a lot of untapped potential. But as soon as I put a goal, like um, I want Boston and I, and I started taking it, I didn't really take it that serious back then. I mean, I wanted to PR but I kind of took for granted that I was just always PR and I just kind of thought, oh, this is running. It's great. You're always getting faster. But there comes an end to that. And it's, you know, it's always hard to qualify for Boston for anyone at any level. Um, and as soon as I put that out there as the goal and it wasn't happening for me and I wasn't even I wasn't even setting PRs like I think my PR from like 2008 was a 351. And then for years, I couldn't even get under that 351. So it wasn't even like I was. Oh, 345, you're halfway there. No, I would just bonk. So how did I get out of it? Um, well, I, after running multiple marathons and having these like major crash and burns, 
I, I realized that it was it was anxiety. And um particularly I ran the Milwaukee race race uh Milwaukee Lakefront <laughs> marathon in the fall. And this marathon was perfectly flat. It had perfect weather. I had just set a PR like in the 8K that was like super fast. I had just run all these super fast workouts. I was in the best shape of my life. And I get there and like by mile eight, I'm done. And that was an eye opener for me. And I realized that um, I needed to kind of, you know, quote unquote, get better and get help because I was just going to keep training. Like, didn't matter how hard I trained, this race anxiety was going to get in the way. So in 2012, um, I realized um, I, I sort of talked to a bunch of people and I got a referral for a sports psychologist who could help me work through some of these issues. And the two like eating disorder therapists I had been to before, uh, the first one I think I told you about did nothing. The second one was even more useless. Just uh, not only that, she was like, she would say things to me that I found offensive. And um, so I kind of didn't think therapy was, you know, after two bad experiences was for me, but this person came highly recommended. And I think the great thing about this was that there was something to apply it to like concrete, like you can go run a race or you can go train and you can talk about how did you feel versus just like the ambiguity of like, go live life and talk about your life. Uh, you had something um, that you can apply it to. And they say, you know, running can teach you so much. And I think it's because it is concrete and it is an experience that you can document. And I've been an avid blogger for, for years now, and we can get into that later, but um having that experience that you can document and you can break down and you can analyze really helps you um, talk about your emotions and your feelings in a concrete way that if you don't have that, it's just a lot more vague. Um, so I went to start seeing this uh, sports psychologist in 2012. And, uh, you know, I knew it was going to kind of be a long journey. So I saw him every week. It was very, I never missed a session. And he had me do sort of exercises of after you do a, a run, talk, you know, think about what went well, what didn't went well, be, be a lot more neutral. Um, he gave me homework every time I kept a journal of, of the homework and everything that he said made sense kind of from an intellectual level. And my husband, Greg, would be telling me the same things um, that this guy was saying. And, and then logically, yes. It all made sense, but I wasn't like emotionally feeling it. It's like, I know that my value as a person is not tied to my marathon PR. And I know that other people aren't judging me because I have not qualified for Boston. And I know that's not true, but I still felt like people were judging me. And I still felt like I was like failing in life because I hadn't qualified for Boston, but I was running all these miles. So I went through um, therapy and I, and I detail all of this in my book, Boston Bound, which we can also get to later. But uh, we talked about a lot of things like for being like more process, focusing on the process instead of focusing on the outcome. Like, you know, stop focusing on that 340 and that number. Like, yes, you know, that's the goal. But if you focus on other things and have other goals that are, are not related to a time, but like what's your race strategy? What's your approach here? What are some other goals that have nothing to do with your time that if you complete those goals, you can feel good about them? What can you control? What can't you control? You can't control the weather. 
you can't control if you end up getting injured. I mean, you kind of can, but not always. Um, so we, we kind of just broke everything down. What can you control? What can't you control? What are your process goals? What are your outcome goals? Um, people aren't really actually um, judging you the way you think. So there's just all these concepts that he just, he just kind of hit me on the head with it every single time. And I would go in there and I would talk about my training for the week. Or if I ran a race, I would, I'd talk about my race. And whenever he heard me going down this path of, of kind of negativity of like not liking my time or whatever, he would like call it out. So, <laughs> so he was like, hit me on the head with it. So he basically, you know, conditioned me to be able to identify those thoughts myself. And just ultimately become a lot more neutral about it and not, and just kind of take the emotion out of running. And I mean, I know there's a lot of joy to be had and a lot of us are really passionate about running and, and everything. And I think that's great. And I continue to be passionate about it, but you can be passionate about it and you can really want it without having it be such an emotional thing. That's like tied to yourself. Um, one of the things he, he told me was that, you know, you should see yourself as a person who runs, not as a runner. Because if you think of yourself as a runner, then your whole identity becomes tangled up in it. If you just think of yourself as a person. And I didn't really have a great sense of self. And I didn't realize this until what was I now at this point, like 35 years old. I didn't realize that I, I didn't really know what I liked about myself or I didn't really know how I valued myself. I was always like a straight A student. I, you know, I had my dance. I had all these things that were like externally validating. And as long as I was exceeding those, I was liking myself, but if not, then I was like hating myself. So I started to try to think about, well, what makes me me? And then I realized it was my, my drive, my dedication, my compassion toward others. Um, the fact that at my heart, I was a good person doing good things. Um, didn't have to be some great achiever to be a good person and, and actually being a good person is much more important than achieving like amazing things. And I just sort of never realized that. So I had to come to that conclusion. Um, so kind of fast forwarding, we had all these sessions and I had a real breakthrough moment in, I want to say a little bit over a year after I was working with him in 2013, when I was, I was injured and I was registered to run the 2013 Chicago marathon and and I was thinking to myself, you know, I will, I was recovering from injury and I knew that the marathon was like in seven weeks. And I knew that I could get up to 26 miles safely in, in that time. So the question was, do I go and run it and run like a slower time? That's not going to be a PR because I'm not that well-trained or do I just like bag it? And I was kind of going back and forth on what I wanted to do. And then that hit me was that, wait a minute, like I wanted to run Chicago for a really long time. Chicago is a really fun race. I want to do it. What's stopping me? And what was stopping me was that, oh, my time might be slow. Oh, what are people going to think? They're going to think that like I'm a four hour marathoner again. And I caught myself and that was the first time I was able to catch it. And I was like, wait a minute, this is self, this line of thinking is hurting me. It's not helping me. I'm self-limiting. I'm taking an opportunity away from myself because I care about what other people think. Um, and I'm valuing my time. So I said, screw the time. I'm going to go to Chicago. I've wanted to run it for years. I'm registered for it. Greg is registered for it. We're going to go. I'm just going to run it and I'll train for it. Like I have six, whatever weeks to train. I'll do my best. And that's all I can do. And I'm going to be happy with it. 
So I did that <laughs> and I had no pressure to, to PR or around a certain time. And the irony of it is even though I wasn't in like the best shape, I still set like, I think like a 30 second PR and I wasn't even trying to PR. And I was like, wow, amazing. This was my first PR in like years out of shape. And it was only because I was, I went into that race, like so relaxed, so chill. And that was my turning point. That's awesome. Um, because you had to come to that realization on your own. Um, so Greg, you know, saying the same things as your therapist, it doesn't mean that you don't care about what your husband says. Of course you do. You love him. You married him. He's a great guy, but it's just, it doesn't, it can be your brother. It can be your sister. It can be somebody you train and run miles with. It can be Greg McMillan from McMillan running it, whoever it is. They all care about you. They all want you to succeed, but there is a difference there with a therapist. And I'm really happy that you had the two experiences that weren't positive at all on the food side and that, you know, you stuck with it on the sports psychologist side, because it is a shame that, you know, with all the schooling that therapists go through, um, the profound impact they can have on somebody for good or for bad. Um, and this goes to couples that are going through awful divorces or painful separations and loss of a child. I mean, any, you know, profound losses that people experience, alcoholism, drugs, things that we need counseling and therapy for. If you find the right person and they connect with you and understand what's going on, they can change your whole life. And, you know, it hits you with Chicago. And I'm just so happy that you, you realized it and you talked about it so now, um, so clearly right now, because yes, Nobody cares about the times we run. That's the truth. And I, when I say nobody, of course your husband cares. Of course your best friends care. But all your Instagram followers don't care what time you run. They don't. You know, they might say they do. And they're going to comment because they want to chime in on a post. And they want to say something. And whatever that something is that they say doesn't define who you are or me or anyone else that's out there in, in the world of social. And it can have hugely positive effects, but it can have negative effects if, if you allow it to. But in this case, that was your turning point because it wasn't in a session with your therapist. He didn't tell you that. You recognized it, that you'd wanted to run that course. You wanted to go do it. You were signed up, you and Greg. And even when you weren't in your best of shape, you went you rolled the dice and you found out something like after not running a PR for a while and you know being stuck, even though it's 30 seconds, 30 seconds is still a win. It's and but way more importantly, you recognized what the issue was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you think about the, the reverse. I have so many friends that are runners. If they run a slower time, if they don't hit their goal, am I gonna not like them or am I gonna not be their friend? No. I'm not I'm not someone's friend because of the times that they run. And and but yet I but then when I apply it to me, I think, oh, people are gonna think badly of me. You know, you don't apply the same criteria to other people that you wouldn't apply to yourself. And I think as you said, people care about your time because they care about you and they know that you care. So if I'm really trying to get a certain goal and they care about me because they like me as a person, they're gonna want me to get that goal. And if they don't, they're not going to think less of me. They're they're going to support me. Um, and if they're judgy, then they're not like really a friend anyway. There's always going to be people that are judgy, true, and unsupportive. And that's just the way life is. I agree. I agree hundred percent. And it, it's a big life lesson to learn. And it's not just a lesson for running. It's a lesson for 
everything. Are you trying to become uh, a PhD? Are you trying to become, you know, the head of a department at, you know, in, in education? Uh, you trying to move up the corporate ladder in business and become a managing director? You're going to have friends in your life who are your real friends who are going to be super excited for you or Greg when you accomplish your goals and you do what you're setting out for, trying to chase down big things. And there's going to be other people in your life that are just not going to be happy. And that's the truth. They're going to, they're the ones who are around you, but they're not really your friends. They're, they're not enemies, but they're, you know, they don't, they're really not all that excited for you, me, or anybody else when we're doing well. And that's why I love David Goggins so much, because Goggins talks about it all the time. They, he sees it the way I see it. A lot of people out there are very happy if you fail and you come right back down into that pit with everyone else that failed versus the people who didn't fail and didn't fall back into that pit and kept going and pushed onward. So I just, I know, um, you know, look, I'm all about, I, I can handle the language and, and all the cuss words because it's all me. I mean, that's the way I am. And I, I could speak like a sailor with the best of them, but um, I just believe that that's true. It's true for a lot of people, um, but you gotta, you gotta be directing your energies and your efforts about what's important to you. And it might even be incredibly important to you and not important to Greg or vice versa. Maybe something super crazy important to him and not as important to you. The important thing is that you guys support each other and, you know, you just realize this is something for you that you got to just, you know, keep chasing it. So keep going with that. I like it. Yeah. And how does this, all of these experiences, all of these learnings, um, and in, in you start to get, so now it's a three, what did you run in Chicago? Three- 348. 348. So how close are you at this point to, you know, achieving your BQ dream and, and making that happen? How close are you in the journey at that point? Yeah. So at that point, so the, the, the time is still 340. And, and just what's interesting about my age is that it's always been 340. <laughs> whenever okay. they, whenever I, um, I would normally get an extra five minutes for aging up, well, so does the Boston standard drop. So it's, uh, I think there was one year where I could have gotten away with a 345, but that was just one year. So, um, so anyway, so we're in this 348 uh, in Chicago. And this was once again, 2013, but my PR from 2009, gosh, what's the math on that? Like four years was a 351. So four years of all these cycles and all this training. And I was able to shave, you know, in that time period, just like three minutes off um, due to all of the anxiety that I was dealing with during those years. So then, um, so then now that I sort of have freed myself of this, I was able to go into races a lot more relaxed and I am trying to think of what the next one was after Chicago. I think it was, okay. So then it was the, the spring of 2014 and I ran the uh, Mississauga marathon in Canada and I still had that goal of 340, but I was a lot more chill about it. I was just like, I'm just, now I just would like to set a PR of any kind um, and one of the sports things my sports psychologist told me is that you don't have to qualify for Boston at your next marathon. This can be a lifelong goal. You have years and years ahead of you. That's why they, you see runners 50, 60, don't feel like you have to do it tomorrow. Um, and so that was, that kind of took a burden off. So I said, okay, it would be great to be Q, but I think, you know, I'd have a lot less anxiety if my goal is, you know, to, to PR. And then I had this whole list of process goals, like, you know, stay strong, you know, do this with your, with your fueling, all that. And so then I was, I was able to run a 343 
which was a, a nice PR um, within just, you know, the next season, uh, just by being relaxed. And um, I was probably, you know, in, I was in better shape than I was in Chicago. But then I was like, okay, I can do a 343. I'm, I'm really close now. So it, instead of trying to like take off this big, you know, 10, 11 minute chunk, it was much easier to kind of step into, step down into it. So now that I was in 343, I was really in striking distance of it. Um, so then in the, um, in the fall, um, I actually decided to hire a coach um, as well, because now that I had the mental skills, I felt like I really needed to make sure that um, my training was individualized to me and that I wasn't making any mistakes there. So I figured if I have a coach, I have a personalized training plan. I know I'm doing the training right. I've got the mental skills. Then all I need is like a good weather day and things should be good to go. And so that happened um, the very next marathon I ran in, in 2014, Columbus. I ran a 340 Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's you, you were, you were probably like flooring it with everything you had coming towards that finish line. Oh, I was. And there was, and it was crowded. I was weaving through people and I'm like, you're in the way of my BQ. Get out of my BQ way. I was, I was like, I was running like a mad woman. Yep. And then the crazy thing is you cross the finish line, you stop your Garmin and you don't know exactly when you started it. Exactly, you don't second. And so it said like 340 and one second. So I was like, I don't know. I mean, did I BQ? Did I not BQ? And so I was like just dying to get back to the hotel where I had my phone where I could like look up the results. Um, and of course I was like in pain. So I'm trying to like trying to get there as quickly as possible. My hips hurting. Um, <laughs> so, and then I get back to the hotel and I get my phone. And I'm like, okay, the moment of truth. And it was 340. Oh, and I'm like, I just like jumped up and down. It was my first BQ. Wow. That, <laughs> that is so cool. And, <laughs> and for people that don't realize like how different it was racing just a few years back, even, you know, like I grew up in the era where the chip was developed, chip timing was developed in like the 1996 Boston, the hundredth Boston, you know, we're coming up on 125th and, um, you know, they went by, they didn't even use your chip time. They gave you a chip, but it didn't matter. So if Elizabeth, if you started in the second or the third wave in Boston or in another race, it was like tough luck. Your the time was the start time, like the official time. So so much has changed in racing. So you're going back, trying to hobble back to your hotel and get back, and you're in suspense. And then you put the phone on, and then you finally see it. And that's 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 got to be a huge emotional, uh, like you had to been like so stoked for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and my mom said, you got it on the nose. I, I was kind of <laughs> like, Oh, I wouldn't, I would have kind of liked a little buffer, but then she was like, she's right. I, I did it perfectly. You know, I have no buffer, but like, this is my first BQ and it's very poetic. It's, it's a beautiful, perfect BQ <laughs> right on the nose. And I knew it wasn't, it wasn't enough because now we're in 2014. So you need to have a little cushion. Correct. But I didn't care. Like once again, little baby steps first, you get a 343, which brings you closer to 340. Then you get the BQ without a lot of cushion that doesn't get you in. And then you get the BQ that does get you in. So you just take little steps to get there. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super good advice. And, um, we definitely have to get into Boston bound your book and all, and the kind of advice that you have in your book, but, um, yeah, it is a gradual process, fitness and building fitness and becoming aerobically strong and developing your aerobic capacity. This stuff takes years and years to develop. It, it takes years of running your, 
basic aerobic strength runs at the right pace. It's not trying to beat your training partner. It's not trying to run fast on your easy days or on your recovery days. It's about running at the right paces on those easier days. And then when it comes time for the hard days, whether it's a tempo run, a fartlek run, a long run with pace work, that's when the damn grind begins. And that's when you got to be able to get after it and, you know, give it everything you got. And that builds the fitness gains over time. But yeah, I mean, you, um, you've been attacking it. And as you talked about with your therapist, like building like process, process goals, race goals, that's important stuff because so many people get really fit and, you know, you have the psychological side, the anxiety component, but other people don't have the anxiety component. They're just not paying any attention to their fueling or they're not paying any attention to what their race strategy is. They're just going to literally get out there and they're going to run and they're not going to put any thought into it. And all of those things can submarine all of your fitness. It can take away a day that could be special. So now you have a coach. So you're working with McMillan running, right? At that point, you have somebody who's writing your plans and doing that. You're getting the psychological piece, the mental piece under control. You're getting your fueling together. You're getting like specific workouts and you're developing it over time. So what are some of the next steps for you in the evolution? Yeah. So next step, I do just want to hit on something you said briefly before, before we go forward is that, you know, you can't, compare yourself to other people. So one of the things that would always just bother the crap out of me before I was working with the sports psychologist was when someone would run a BQ on their first marathon or their second marathon, or, or when someone would say, Oh, you're a marathon runner. Have you done Boston? As if like, that was the be all end all. It didn't matter if you'd done a you know, million marathons. If you haven't done Boston, you're not a real runner. And, um, and so those two things would just, would just bother the crap out of me. But someone's like for me my first marathon was a 446 someone else's theirs could be a theirs could be a 340 just because they have different genetics um and genetics does play a big role in it some some person their first marathon could be five hour 30 minutes it's just you kind of got to go with what you're dealt with and it's all about maximizing your own potential and so um and i had to sort of rely on that mental skill with my most recent marathon where it's like well you know for me running something like you know, a 310 or 309 might be like my lifetime absolute fastest, but for someone else, their lifetime fastest might be a 250. So I can't compare, you know, my time to theirs. So you just have to really, and I know it's just so hard with all the social media and the Instagram to like not compare yourself, but you really have to be um, very diligent about not falling into that comparison trap because once you do, it will just go, it will just go nowhere, nowhere good. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. It's sound advice um, because by nature, you know, running is an individual sport, but it is a group sport if you've run it in high school or college. And I was a college baseball player, you know, Division One, and I went to JMU. So you went to UVA. So I oh, used yeah. to play play at UVA and all the schools around there and the Southern schools. And I, I really enjoyed that part of the country and really, really liked it. But um, running. It's, it's an individual sport for sure, but it definitely has community and team elements. And, you know, when you were run for a team, um, you know, and it's not a team, I mean, Greg's 
McMillan performance and all that in the coaching group. I mean, you're kind of a team, but you're really not a team. I mean, you might wear singlets and, and they, you could have a team. You could register for Boston as a team. You could have a master's team and whatnot, but it's not like my team is Central Park Track Club. Like that's an actual like specific running team. And I'm sure in Northern Virginia, you probably have loads of teams. And I don't know if you actually run for one or you just, you know, you wear, you wear your McMillan gear from what I see, you know, on your post. But at the end of the day, you know, it's your running. It's your fitness and, you know, even, you know, your own husband, like, you know, whatever, you can have fun rivalries with your husband, sibling rivalries, friends, you know, whatever, frenemies, age group competitors that you see regularly in like Northern Virginia, DC racing area. Um, but you got to use it to your advantage to make you better. Like, don't let it be, you know, bring you down the other way. Like, oh, wow, Elizabeth beat me again in this race. I suck. I'm not any good. No, 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 no. That isn't, okay, she beat me. She's doing really well. Okay, I got up my game. I'm going to take her down in the next race. Or what can I do? Or is that just not realistic at all? Like, you got to be a fair judge of where you are. Okay, and where are you trying to get to? And the other big thing too is I think people put every single thing they have, you know, the only thing that matters, you, you made the point, people say it. Oh, you haven't run Boston. So yes, it makes them feel inferior. It makes them feel like they're not a true quote unquote marathoner. I've got a ton of my, people who run on my team on Central Park Track Club, they would never run a marathon. Okay. They don't have any interest in running a marathon. They're terrific in the shorter distances and on the track and they want to run cross country and they're phenomenal runners. And I think they just hate all of the energy and attention. And I don't blame them. If I were running the mile and two mile only or running cross country only or running track stuff, and the only thing I ever saw on Facebook or Instagram were all these Boston posts, I'd probably be like, I don't want to read about any of this anymore. So you got to find what is interesting to you and what do you want to do and what do you want to accomplish? And that's what you have to focus on. Yeah. And, you know, run your own race, focus on what you can control. You can't control what someone else runs. Um, so just really, I mean, yes, you do want to just kind of fuel off of, uh, you know, that competition and when you're in a race and there's someone nearby and that can help you run faster because that's motivating to you. That's, that's good. Um, but you don't want to maybe in mile two of a marathon, try to keep up with someone like that. And maybe in mile 25, you do. <laughs> so you just have to have that. This goes back to the strategy. Definitely. Definitely. So, so we're at 340. So you're, you're there, but you're, you're not there yet. Although, it, and again, I think that's just sound words that you said there. It's really good. And it's sage advice. Like you gotta, people do not celebrate their wins. It's one of the things that drives me crazy. And, and I think you also mentioned it, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes back. We are great runners as a whole. We're great at giving advice to other runners. I think you need a day off, Elizabeth. You know, mm -hmm. I think you'd be better off to just take a rest day. Go, you'll come back and you'll be fresh. Or don't worry about it. It was so hot today. You don't handle heat or humidity as well as me. That's probably why you struggled today. But for our own selves, we're like, man, I ran like shit today. I had nothing. I didn't step up. It was hot. So what? Everybody else handled heat well. Like, we are really good at giving fair and sound advice to others, but then not giving ourselves a pass or just being positive about what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to start loving ourselves and think about like, would you say this to one of your friends? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, so continuing on with the, with the marathon. So we were in um, the Columbus 2014, that was the 340. So then the next season, 
um, which was spring of 2015. I ran this really small race called the BNA uh, Trail Marathon, which is a, a paved trail in Maryland. Um, very fast, small, small race, very well organized. And I wanted something low key. Uh, I, I like, you know, as a runner, I enjoy the big city, big races. I also enjoy the low key, you know, 100, 200 person. I like, I like to have a very vast uh, variety of experiences. So it, this now is time for a smaller one. So I ran this race in 2015 and still working with the coach. And I think, you know, now that I had the mental skills and now that I had the coach uh, building on the previous cycle from Columbus, uh, I was able to, um, to come away from that race with a 335. And yeah. that was a five minute cushion. Yes. So, so there, so there, so that was your first true, like was going to get you under and getting into the 335 get you in? Yes, it did. Um, I think that the cutoff that year was three minutes something. And I had, that was a, it was a four minute 30, 430. So I, um, I was, you know, I had to register on the last day because I was, it still was like, it was 430 or whatever, but I figured, you know, they're going to let a lot of people in from this last day. I should be one of the first people because I'm almost at five minutes. And I was, I was pretty confident about it um, at that point because we, we'd never seen that you needed a cushion, anything more than like two minutes or something at that time. They hadn't gone crazy with it. Um, uh, so I was like, it is now, it. now it's like, you need like a 10 minute buffer, whatever it is. Um, so it's, it, it was still, it was pretty back in 2015. Like if you had four minutes and 30 seconds, you were pretty sure you were going to get in. So I, I, I wasn't really losing sleep over it. Um, and I did get in. Um, and that, since that I ran that in the spring of 2015, that qualified me for the spring 2016 Boston, which I registered for. And then it was nice in the fall. Um, that was like the first season in the fall of uh, 2015 that I didn't run a marathon because I had been running a marathon like every fall, every spring, two a year, always trying to get there. And I had finally done it. And I, I was able to take that fall to focus on the half marathon, which was just a nice, change and I, I need to do that again. Um, I, you know, it's easy to become st- sort of super obsessed with the marathon, but the half marathon has lots of lots to offer too. And it, if you just real, really focus on it, you can get a lot better at it. So, um, so that fall, I, you know, my half marathon PR had also had not budged. I hadn't really focused on it. I'd run a ton of them as like tune-up races, but I was kind of stuck at like 141, 142. I had been stuck at that since 2010 and it was now 2015. And I ran, I ran two of them. I ran Columbus and then I ran Richmond and those are four weeks apart. So in Columbus, I hit 137, uh, which was my first sub 140. I broke 140, I hit 137. And then literally four weeks later, I ran 135. Huge drops, two in, yeah. a, row, two in a row too. Two in a row, two big ones. Yeah. And so now I was at 135, but like for the past, you know, five years, my PR was a 141 and now all of a sudden it's a 135. Um, which was, uh, which was incredible. So, so then, you know, this, then I, um, kind of moved on to training for Boston in 2016 and on the way there, I ran before, before we do that, I just want to know, did you, um, you were training specifically, obviously for the halves, cause you had said deliberately you weren't going to run a marathon that year. What did, did you do anything unique or different in that cycle? Do you think? Cause that's, that's like six minutes, which is big and it's fantastic. And it's advice I try to give to people all the time, which might seem hypocritical for me, <laughs> the guy who runs every major and like every marathon and then ultras too. Um, but you do, um, 
I'm 60. I've done so many things in running. So I can almost kind of do almost anything I want at this point. What am I going to do at this point? I'm not going to break myself. And I'm having the time of my life meeting fun people like you around at all these races. But um, changing the direction of your training, changing a cycle or even two or even three and putting focus way more on speed or on track or on cross country or just a different system of the of the body can yield good results. I don't want to just slip through there and just not at least see if there was anything unique you did. Definitely. Um, you know, instead of the the long runs, you know, the, the 20 milers, I think the longest run he had me do was two hours. We do them by time. Two hours at that point was about a 14 miler. Um, so that was the, the longest I would run, but he would have me doing, um, you know, half marathon pace miles in those long runs. He had me doing um, a lot more speed work. Uh, I was still running a pretty good volume. Um, but when I went to the, to those races, I didn't have the fatigue of all those long runs. Cause usually when I was doing a half marathon, it was kind of a, as a tune up. So I, I really focused on, um, and, and also I, I would, I forgot to mention that summer of 2015, I did like a 5k extravaganza. I was like, you know, now that I've qualified for Boston, I'm just going to be all about 5k's. It's hot. I just want to do a ton of these. So I was running like, you know, 5k every two or three weeks. And that really helped get my speed up. By the end of that, I had like totally, uh, wasn't setting PRs because it was a summer, but I was setting like hot weather, like summer PRs. And so I knew that I had gained a lot of speed. So then I built on that speed in that fall that I had gained in 5k training and built on that, um, some endurance to then bring that to the half marathon. Cool. Well, yeah, I mean, it's logical. It makes sense that there's a lot of people out there that fall into what I call like the marathon trap where they're doing three, maybe even four a year. And there are people, um, Gene Dykes, I just happen to have one of those kind of bodies like jeans where I can recover really quickly and I can run marathon pace and stay consistent. And, it's it's adapting over many, many, many years of running. But other people, they're trying to do that because they see their friends doing that, going back to, again, what he's doing or what she's doing. And you know what? That's not in your best interest. If your coach is telling you to do that and you have a coach, great. If you don't have a coach, I highly recommend you get one. I don't need one at this point because I know what I'm doing. I had to take care of myself and prepare myself if I'm trying to build up for one big race or build up to a couple like later in a year. But for people that don't understand periodization and, and mileage and what kind of workouts they should be doing and learning more about nutrition and, and also like prehab and strength stuff, it, it just pays such dividends and benefits to work with somebody who understands like, what are your goals and like, what are you trying to accomplish? Because otherwise you're going to get stuck. And you're right. In the beginning, those PRs come easy, man. I don't care um, what time you came into from, whether it's five hours, four hours, three something, whatever, you're going to drop and you're going to drop a lot. And then at some point it doesn't happen anymore. And it's like, uh Oh, what do we do now? Um, so you, you made changes, you changed up your training philosophy. You did a ton of 5Ks in the summer heat, which is always good. Yeah, maybe you're not going to run your fastest 5K in the summer because of the heat, but that's great training, man. It's high heart rate. It's fast turnover. You're gunning it. You're cranking it. And then you're doing speed work in a half marathon workout. You know, you're running half marathon pace miles, maybe even faster. All good things that lead to, to what's going to no doubt pay dividends in the marathon. So take it from there. Yeah. So taking from there. So then while we're on the topic of Habs, I, I ran the uh, Shamrock half in Virginia beach as 
my tune up, I traditionally like to run a half tune up before a full. And this race was, I think, six weeks before Boston. And the weather was like torrential downpour, high winds, one of those really, really nasty storms was coming through. It was about 47 degrees and no one expected to be here. I didn't expect to be here. I mean, I just run this massive PR of 135. So I kind of just tossed that goal out of the window and I was like, I'm just going to try to just um, run by, by feel. And this is the one example of where, as you said earlier, your strategy is really important. So I found out which direction the wind was going. And I made sure that during those miles, I stayed in a pack, like, so that I wouldn't have to deal with the wind. So I could kind of draft. And then once I shifted direction and the wind was going to be at my back, I could get out of that pack. And I ended up running another PR at two minutes, 133, which was just like, I could not even believe it. I was like one of the only people that I knew that PR'd that day. No one could believe it. This is not PR weather, but I was just getting, I was getting so fit and I was just getting so used to like, I was getting so good at racing the half and knowing what it should feel like and having that strategy. And that was just one of those, those amazing moments. And it also kind of, um, I was almost teary eyed at the end because I had run that same shamrock half a few years back before I had resolved all my mental issues. And it was windy and I really wanted a PR, but I didn't get a PR and because the wind slowed me down and I was really upset about it. And here I was setting this massive PR, like in the wind, in the rain. And it was just like, look how far I've come. So that was really, that was a great moment. Um, so then Boston came, Boston 2016, which was my first. And um, lo and behold, it was amazing spectator weather, but not great uh, racing weather. Beach weather. It was 70 at the start. Just standing around, people were like sweating. And 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 one of the things though, like you know, everyone, everybody's unique. And 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 you know, heat heat is hard on everyone. And I'm not trying to say that it's not, but I have I find that I particularly for me, it's like a double whammy. And I know that you know, local runners who I would maybe be about the same pace as in the the cold races, when it's a hot race, they're going to always outperform me. I'm always going to suffer a lot more than than most people it's just I've been like that since my days of dance when I was a dancer I'd always end up with this like bright red face everyone would ask if I was okay I've just always been really like like hot when I exercise and I my body is not great at cooling itself down so that's always been kind of a disadvantage or even when the race is in the high 50s low 60s everyone's like that's perfect weather didn't affect me and like for me that was another you know kind of issue I had to deal with is you know, I would say, oh, I didn't run well and I'm blaming the weather, but it was 59 degrees and no one else was blaming the weather because everyone else thought it was perfect, but you know, not for me. I needed, you know, for me, for me to have it not impact me, it needs to be like 50 or below. So anyway, but I didn't, I didn't care that it was warm because my attitude now was this is Boston. This is what I had been working for, for like eight, nine years now. And I have had blood and sweat and tears for this moment. And I'm not going to rob myself of the joy because it's hot and because I'm going to struggle physically. I know I'm going to struggle physically. I know it's going to be difficult, but gosh, damn it. (laughs) I don't enjoy every single second of that race. You know, I'm robbing myself of everything that I've worked for. And I knew this was, this was it. This was my moment. And I was going to run the entire race with a smile on my face, no matter 
how, how hard it was with the heat. And it was hard. I ran 348. Um, and I was probably in shape for like, like 330. I think, you know, I would have just run like a 133 half a few weeks before. So I was thinking maybe I could do a 330, maybe faster. But, you know, it didn't happen. It was hot. I ended up in the medical tent <laughs> with hyponatremia, not having taken in enough electrolytes because uh, I just kept drinking so much water. Didn't didn't balance it out right. Ended up sort of at the finish line. People asking me if I was okay and me thinking in my mind I was okay, but not being able to tell them I was okay. Um, so anyway, so but once again, I so ended up in the medical tent. It was fine. I took one of their little salt solution soup things hung out there for a while ultimately met back up with Greg and everything was fine but it was it was an amazing experience I will never forget my first Boston and how happy I was and just the whole weekend it's not just about the race you know with Boston it's about the experience it's about getting up there like I put that Boston jacket on for the very first time uh, I had ordered it online, but I didn't wear it. Everyone has kind of like their different rules about when they wear the jacket. So for me, I said, well, I've officially made it to Boston Marathon weekend. I now can wear the jacket on the plane to Boston. So everyone who else is on this plane, they we all know that we're all kind of running this marathon. So I put that jacket on. I was so happy. Got on that plane, wore the jacket on the plane. And the whole weekend was just like beaming. Spent way too much money at the expo. I was just grabbing. I want this. I want this. Yep. I wasn't even trying stuff on. I mean, because <laughs> I was like, I don't know when I'm going to be back here. And I just just um, just bought everything in sight. And um, I think, you know, look, I, I, I hadn't run this race ever. So I have years of savings from not having been at this expo. We've justified it. <laughs> so I, uh, I did that. And, um, you know, I met up with, you know, Boston is another thing, you know, people have made friends with other runners through Facebook groups and other forms of social media. And there's so much going on that weekend where you can meet up with the people that you only have known online. I met up and I met my coach, uh, Andrew Lemoncello. I met him in person for the first time. I met Greg McMillan in person for the first time. We had a group run. Um, I had, I didn't even talk about the book, but I had like I was about to release the book. No one really knew about the book um, at that point. Uh, but I, uh, I anyway, participated in all these kind of like side events that just make the weekend. And then the race itself is like the grand finale. It just builds and builds and builds with all these events and the expo and all of the hype and the city, all the, the people that live there, they love the runners. They're so welcoming. Many cities, there's a marathon going on. There's the people who live there, they don't know, they don't care. Maybe they're annoyed that the roads are going to be you know, taken up. But when you run Boston, it's different. It's different than New York. It's different than Chicago. It's different than Columbus because Everyone knows it's Marathon Monday in that city. Everyone is supportive and the whole city celebrates it versus these kind of other marathon runners where it's just, oh, that's, you know, the marathon's happening. That's so well said because it it's an event. It really is an event. I mean, we're coming up on the 125th and I'm blessed to have run in the 100th. And um, for people that like the history of Boston and enjoy that kind of stuff, They'd never had a field size of larger than maybe 10,000, Elizabeth, and decided to celebrate the 100 to make it so special. They were going to have a lottery. Like, lotteries didn't exist back then. They're very common now. I mean, London, like, I don't know how many people go in the London lottery, and it's like winning a real lottery to get in London if you're not a London resident and you can't do a time qualifier. So 
it is remarkably special. And the this was the first time ever that t- runners were staged that there were that many. I think the largest field size at that point was 12,000 or 14,000. There were 40,000 runners. So it's like four times more, not just Boston, any race, London, New York, all of them. And, you know, this is back when people were literally going to the bathroom on people's lawns in Hopkinton, but also people would invite you in if you wanted to go to the bathroom. It wasn't like it is now where things are very different. People are out there on the lawn saying hi in the morning as we're going down to make our ways to our crowd, but my God, things were different. Um, and I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, it was just amazing. And 1995 was my first time, um, you know, being up there and for the 99th and you're right. Everything about it is different from racing on a Monday, the Red Sox playing a day game, like the city is shut down. It's a party. I mean, it is a party from the morning you get up at five o'clock in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, whatever time it is, if you even sleep to get out to Hopkinton from the race, Fenway's going bananas because the game is on. The bars are going wild all day and you get the weekend to kind of hang out and meet all these people, like you said who you've known from either Facebook or Instagram and you roll up and you spend way too much money. Um, You're talking about how much money you spent. I I stopped tracking a long time ago, how much (laughs) money I spent at these expos, man. I just melt all my cards as soon as I roll in. I'm like this, that, that, that. Okay. Um, And you know, you roll out of there and you like, don't even remember what you spent it on or why, or, you know, gifts from my son and other friends. I'm like, I got to get this person a shirt or that person a hat. Um, and different things. And, and, you know, so cool for you. Um, but what I love the most and what I'm proud of you for doing is you knew going in, um, that that was not the conditions for you. Um, we all have our, our kryptonite. We all have something that we struggle with and some of us really it's wind or it's cold or it's heat, whatever it is. So you knew that going in, but I'm just so happy that you didn't allow that to take over and wreck your first experience. Cause there are people who've done just that because the only thing in the world they were focused on is what am I going to run in my first Boston? I have to run as fast as I've run somewhere else. And then they had the worst experience as opposed to in your case where you got all of it, you, you sucked the marrow out of it. You got the whole full experience and I'm just really happy that you did. And I kind of, you know, part of me wanted to set sort of a low bar. It's the first one. Um, so it just made it easier to go back and run faster. And, you know, to now you have this other goal, like I want to run bo- every time I run Boston, I want it to be faster. Obviously that cannot continue, but if you run a really slow course, Boston, it makes it all the easier to, to PR it the second time. So there's the strategy run slower <laughs> in your first one and you're automatically going to keep, you're going to keep improving unless you get to a certain age in life where you just can't get faster anymore. But, you know. We're still, we're still giving it hell, you know, we're still out there running and I've got friends of mine, um, who've run crazy amounts of Boston's. I'm only on maybe like my eighth or my ninth. I've got friends who've run 20 or 25 and just completely crazy numbers a lot. <laughs> and experience. Yeah, it is. It is a lot. And I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, I had a huge gap in there where I was coaching my son's sports teams for years and years and years and just decided I was going to step off of running for like, no, it was nine years. It was a nine year break. And I don't regret it at all because I got to be a part of all of those teams with him, all those travel baseball teams and getting them ready for high school. And then he decided, you know, he wanted to run and, uh, you know, to get him ready to run cross country, uh, when he had never run before. And his mom was a terrific runner. I used to coach his mom. She's a 253 marathoner. And, um, we met through running and, um, just, 
amazing experiences. So, and, and they're lifelong experiences. I mean, I'm 60 and I'm still doing it. And I still have friends that I met up there when I was 35 years old, that's 25 years of running. And not everyone from my peer group is still running. Some of them aren't running anymore. They can't run anymore. Maybe they're just not had knee replacements, hip replacements, a hundred things, or they just lost the, the drive. Um, I think one of the things people struggle with as they get older is if they can't run the same times. And I think like psychologically, like you figured this huge piece out about yourself. I figured out for myself, I'm never going to run a 241 like I ran in Boston in 1996, but there's age graded times. Those age graded times count. They mean something. They're not fake. It's runners from around the world based on how old you are running like the best time at any of those distances, a mile, five miles, 10 miles, 20 miles. And if you can run in 80% age grade time, which is always my goal, that's a nationally ranked time. And I run a lot of 80% age age graded times. Those times, it will tell you if it's a marathon. Okay, this is a 236 marathon. Well, my marathon PR is 240. Now, does that mean I think it's better than my PR? Maybe not, but it does give me a lot of pride if that table is real and it's meaningful. Like, hey, this is something. Yeah. So, but other people are like, well, if I can't run the same time I ran, you know, 20 years ago, I don't want to run. I'm like, okay, whatever. To me, you're missing out because it's it's special. And um, I think you had to go through so much to get there. Um, and then when you did, you were super, super excited. So when did you decide, you know, that you were going to write Boston Bound and like what led you to write the book and, you know, talk a little about how that all came to be? Yeah. So, uh, I had wanted to write a book since I was like, could pick up a pen since I was like eight years old. I've always been an avid writer and, um, I've had, you know, I, when I was a kid, I would be prolific with short stories and in college, I majored in English. And in my professional career, I started out in marketing communications, writing you know, website copy and press releases and product brochures. And that's how I got into marketing was because there's a lot of writing involved. And it's it's somewhat creative uh, when you're trying to sell something. So as, as we all know in marketing, um, <laughs> a little bit of truth and creativity. So um, so writing has always been um, a, a huge passion of mine. And I started a blog in 2005, like the MySpace blog. Um, and then I transitioned the MySpace blog onto a normal blogging platform as MySpace was going away in like 2009 timeframe. And the blog was about was exclusively about running and running focused and all my training and racing and thoughts and everything. And sometimes it would include some other personal things, but mostly focused on running. And, um, you know, this desire to write a book kind of, you know, my childhood dream, it was going to be like a novel, just kind of fell by the wayside, you know, you, you grow up, you get a job, you get involved in things, and you just don't do it. And, but I've always known still that I always thought, well, when I retire, and I have a full time job, then I'll write the book. Uh, so once I went through this experience, and I, I truly, when it was a break, it wasn't just for running, it was a whole personality, like, transformation and transplant, like, I literally feel like a different person than I, than I was now that I'm more confident. I don't care what people think. And this is in all areas of my life. I truly love myself. I have all these mental skills. I, I'm more confident. I, I really felt like I wanted to share that with other people. I really felt like I could help other people um, with that. And that, and I thought that I could write out all of my experiences and I had the blog documenting 
kind of all everything I went through with the sports psychologist in detail, everything we talked about. And so I had it all in my head. I had it written in my head, parts of it written in the blog. Um, Greg really pushed me to make it a reality. He's like, go sit down and write. Like I said, oh, maybe I'll write a book. He really, um, he really kind of pushed me to do it. And we were on a, a cruise in the summer of 2015, sort of after I BQ'd. He's like, now that you've BQ'd, you have it like, you're not, you could, you have some time now. You're not running any full marathons. You have some time this fall to really focus on it. When we get back from this cruise, you need to really start working on it. And, and I did. And I, every weekend I took a dedicated amount of time um, starting. And I guess that was like August of 2015. I would spend, you know, several hours each weekend um, kind of writing this book and sometimes in the evenings as well. And, and it came together and I finished it. I wanted the last chapter to, to be my experience of running the 2016. Um, so I had the whole thing written except for that last chapter um, by, I want to say like March or April. Um, so it took me like six, seven months to write. And then I finally was able to write that last chapter. And, and then I knew the book was ready. Uh, it was ready to go publish. And so then it was published um, in May, just like four weeks after that Boston Marathon was published pretty quickly. And I hadn't really, at that point, I hadn't, I'd had my blog. My blog had like an okay following, like not nearly as many. It wasn't like prominent. I wasn't doing, I wasn't like getting like, you know, brands coming to me to review things. It was just, um, I could tell from the analytics that it was getting a decent amount of views. I mean, I had a lot of friends that were runners. I would post them on Facebook. I, I didn't really, I didn't have an Instagram following. In fact, I had, you know, 400, 500 people on Instagram. And I started trying to build up a presence on Instagram in around the time of the Boston Marathon because I knew this book was coming out. So around uh, April of 2016, I started building uh, a following by, you know, using and I'm in marketing, so I know how to use social media really well. I just never had a reason to do it for for myself. Um, So since I already knew how to use social media, I started growing that following with all the techniques with hashtags and the content and the photo and like all everything that you do to grow your following. And it, and this was back when Instagram was sort of younger and it was easy to grow the following really quickly. And so um, it just, all these followers um, started coming and I was getting like 300, 400, 500 followers a week. And so by the time the book came out, I had like several thousand followers. And then when the book came out, um, people started hearing about it and I started just getting even more followers. And, um, when I put the book out there, I did not have any expectations for its, its success. I did not expect it to like be a moneymaker. That was kind of the last thing on my list. It was kind of a litmus. It was kind of a, I had a, um, a, a spreadsheet of like all my expenses of it. Um, and then I, and then all of the, the, the money that I would make. And if it evened out, if I was a net zero, I thought I'd be in a good spot if I sold enough to make up for the, for the costs of it. Um, so the goal was, was, was definitely not to make money. The goal was to, um, get that story out there and get people, um, reading it and relating it and helping people so that they, uh, they were experiencing, uh, race anxiety, not even, race anxiety, any kind of mental barrier, because these lessons, as we've said, are applicable to many areas of life. So for example, someone read it, this guy read it and said that he applied it to getting the promotion. He was having his feelings because he hadn't gotten a promotion in three years. And he said that the book really helped him with that. Um, 
I've gotten so many emails and direct messages on people saying that it's helped them in way, well, many other areas of life. So, so anyway, I had no expectations. I, I published it. I hadn't really told many people in advance I was going to publish it. I'd only let a few people read the manuscript. My mom is a professional editor, so she edited it for me. Thank you, mom. <laughs> um, so I, I was lucky to have that. Uh, and, you know, so my, my friends were the first people that, that bought it. And then I guess um, word just got out. You know, I had this Instagram following and the sales just like exploded um, way more. And I just, I would look and see the sales and I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and the feedback I was getting was like, this book changed my life or this is my someone said it was their favorite book or people were like highlighting it and, and taking notes in it and this is just not at all <laughs> I'd never I thought you know if it helps one person it was worth it um it was it was just it was just beyond my wildest dreams or imagination how well it was received and, and now I, I go to races or I go I was like at a chess tournament a few weekends ago and, and someone comes up to me and he says I've read your book uh it's <laughs> randomly so it's been it's been a crazy ride and um and it's just been amazing. I do plan to write another book at some point. I just I, I'm not ready now. I think I'll know when I'm ready and what it will be about. Um, but this book has now been out for uh, almost five years and it still sells um, selling every day. Uh, it's 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 amazing and so I'm just so um, grateful that I've had this opportunity to share my story and to help like so many other people. Um, with it. What an amazing experience. Um, you know, you, if you're analytical, you know, you set these goals and a kind of person like that, it's like, it's, it's very simple things. Like, you know, at this point you're just like, just to break even or to kind of cover your costs or whatever. But, you know, it was so cathartic for you to write the book. I mean, to go through all of these experiences that you'd had and knowing that the odds are there's probably a lot of other people. And, you know, as we've covered in detail in this episode, all of these things are applicable um, for very, very many different uh, avenues and facets of life. Um, they just are. And um, I always tell people all the time that runners are the best people because we're disciplined, we're hard workers, we're determined. We literally never give up. Um, we we will keep going, uh, we'll keep persevering. And in your case, yeah, you needed some help to kind of get to the bottom of a lot of those things. But yeah, after that, with coaching, with hard work and continuing to just hammer away, you got there, you achieved your dream and good job by Greg pushing you to you know, to get after it. Cause you need, we all need somebody like that in our life because we can always just say, you know what, I'm going to start this podcast soon. It's so funny when you're saying that <laughs> my son called me on my podcast. Cause I kept putting it out there that I was going to do it soon. And he said, dad, what's soon? You said you were going to do this. You've been on all these shows. You know, you want to do a podcast. When are you going to actually do the podcast? So you know, you, we need somebody in our life like that, that we love and whose opinion we value to just kind of not necessarily call us on it, but just make it, make you aware enough, like, okay, it's time now. So you had that opening, you're on a cruise and you started like allocating a certain amount of time. You got it done. Now, did you self-publish or did you, did you go through a publisher? Yeah, I self-published because I'm a professional marketer and really what a publisher does is they market the book. And, um, and then they take, I don't know, like 90% of the money goes to them and you get maybe like 50 cents 
per book sold. So when you self-publish, you you still um, you publish through the Amazon. I use the Amazon self-publishing. So um, I still get, I still don't get the whole thing, but I get way more than um, like the 10, 5% I'd get from self-publishing. But I knew um, as a professional marketer, I knew how to market it through social media, through, um, I got some press coverage. It was in competitor magazine. I knew how to, to earn that press coverage. Um, I knew how to, I knew what the podcasts were and how at the time when it was launching, how to get the word out. So um I think in the end, I don't know that um, if I had gone through a publisher, if they would have been able to do much more for me. I mean, maybe they could have had more book signings or, or things like that. Um, but I also I was able to do book signings um, locally. And um, the folks who made the Boston documentary, they invited me to their um, to their preview at the Boston Marathon 2018 to sign books there. Um, so I've gotten these opportunities through through various avenues. So I just attacked it through all the various channels that I would normally market a business through. Um, and it really worked out. So um, I mean, if someone's trying to publish a book, I would say like it's marketing it, writing the book is like just one small part of it. Like marketing it is huge. So um, if you know how to do that, then self-publish. If not, then you might want to try to get a publisher. Such, such good advice. And you know, like sometimes it's a huge success. It's helped so many people and that's wonderful. But even if it wasn't, even if you just did it because you wanted to put it down in on paper, you wanted to put your story down, your struggles, and you wanted to just document all that you had been through and not a single person had bought the book. It still would have been a win. It still would have been something amazing and that you fulfilled it. And because you said you had aspirations to write and, and to write a book since you were little, but to have it come out and be so successful and present these opportunities for you to speak and to meet other runners, but way more importantly, to just help other people and have them acknowledge that it's got to feel like pretty amazing. Oh yeah, it, it really does. And the, every time I get a message or every time I see someone who said that the book has like helped them, it's, it just, you know, makes me feel um, feel really, really great inside. And for me, it's, it's just sort of a, um, a coming together of all my passions. So I love running. I love writing. I love marketing and like all those things to kind of come together in this book project. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it's a culmination of all of those areas, um, that you, that are strengths of yours and things that you really identify with. Um, one question, there it is, there it is on the screen, Boston. Now we'll get a screenshot of that for when we publish uh, the podcast and we put it out there and we do some promotion. That's a great shot. Um, so I'll get get a frame of that from uh, from the Zoom grab. You know, we'll, we'll get that involved and we'll have links to the book and to your blog page, your webpage, all of that good stuff. Um, but I want, one thing I always ask people, um, you know, and I think it's super, super important and maybe in your story, did you have a mentor somewhere in high school or college that really noticed that you had skill in writing and maybe influenced your writing in any way, maybe a teacher, a professor, or somebody where you connected with them and realized, hey, I'm really good at this. This is something I'm going to continue to pursue because it's obviously uh, come full circle for you. I wouldn't necessarily say a teacher. I mean, I did get good grades and I, whenever I, I wrote a paper, it was almost always an A. Um, but I didn't really necessarily have a mentor or someone in college. I would say I got a lot of good, um, sort of feedback from bosses that I've had at, at, in various, 
um, jobs that I've held where someone will see something that I wrote and and they would say, wow, this is this is really great, especially in, in marketing writing that was kind of new to me. So um, I've had a lot of kind of encouragement and support that way. I mean, no one person really um, sticks out. I mean, my parents are always very, very supportive of, of my writing, Greg as well. But um, it's just something that I, I think I just have a natural gift for it because I have um, since I literally learned how to write, I've just been writing stories and writing so much that it's just, um, it's just a sort of a passion of mine. Yeah. Good stuff. And you had your mom to edit the book. So that was it. That was a huge bonus too, right? Yeah. Keep, keep it in the family. And, exactly. um, obviously you're a very driven person. Um, nobody uh, keeps knocking on a door for something that long before banging it down without being driven and, um, you know, really getting after it. So where do you think that comes from? In your life, does it come from one of your parents or something specific? What do you What do you think? You know, I don't really know what I attribute to. That's that's a good question. I just when I try to think back to my the youngest memory I have of trying to achieve something. I remember in second grade there was these reading things, and they were different colors. And like level one was red, level two was was uh, blue, and it was self paced. And there were just you know you could just do it whatever. It was part of the classroom and. The other kids would go do recess or they would play and I would go read these things. And I was going to be the first one <laughs> to get to like the level seven brown. And I was like just dedicated. And this is second grade. And I just like tore through the all this reading material. And then when I got there, um, everyone else was still like on level one or two. And I just felt so good about that. <laughs> Love it. That's so, a, I mean, I think it's just innate in me. I don't really know if it comes from anywhere. Yeah, it doesn't have to, but it's that just tell it's and it's a great uh, example because at a super young age, that was a, as a poignant example as you could possibly give. We had something uh, on the schoolyard that I remember too. We had something called the bookmobile and it was crazy. I, they don't have things like that anymore. I wish they did, but it was just basically like a book bookmobile, like a library, like a roving library. And, you know, you, you basically would get stars for, you know, reading the book and then writing a comprehension report and same kind of thing. I was always like, man, I'm just going to blow through this entire list. I'm just going to like rip and be like, there's no way you read this book. I'm like, I read this book. And I would write, cause you had to write a little comprehension piece on it. And so, yeah, I had that same kind of spirit, uh, in me and, you know, you never, it's not, it doesn't just apply to athletics. It applies to all areas of our life. Absolutely. So I have to say, it's been super fun getting to know you, Elizabeth. I really appreciate the stories you shared and everything about your running journey, your marathoning journey, writing your book, how that's helped so many other people. And before we roll out of here, I just want to make sure if there's anything big, you know, in your plans for 2021 or anything that we haven't gotten to today, that I give you a chance to share that with everybody. No, I mean, I, I just really hope my, I plan to run Boston in, in 2022. Um, I've done, I did 2016 and then I did 2018 and I kind of like doing it every other year just because, um, it, it sort of, I it felt like if I did it every year, it would maybe sort of lose its, um, excitement. And so I do it every, my, the plan is to do it every two years, as long as I'm able to continue qualifying and, um, so I did the virtual, I did the, I did, I ran it in 2018 in that, in that horrible storm, but, um, I'm good in rain and wind. So I actually, I ran a 326, uh, in that weather, um, which most people would say, oh, 20, 2016 hot weather was better. But once again, I do better when I'm freezing. So, um, so that was great weather for me. Uh, and so I ran the 2018 and then I ran, um, 
2020 virtual. And then I, I plan to run again in 22. Hopefully they, they have it on Patriots Day. And hopefully it's in April. Hopefully it's the normal field size. Um, fingers crossed because that is my plan. I think that that's probably very likely to happen. Um, I um, it I think that there's uh, of the majors. I think Berlin is definitely in peril or could be in peril. I think Tokyo. I don't see it happening. I'm registered. Um, I think London will 100% happen. I think New York will 100% happen, and I think Boston will 100% happen. Chicago. I think they're cutting field size, and that probably probably will happen also. But I do think you're right. I think 2022 we have a really good chance for things to get back on their normal calendared schedule and the races to become more of what we're accustomed to. Certainly that's something to be hopeful for because right now it doesn't feel at all like the racing that we're accustomed to when we show up. And although it's still a fun experience to be able to see your friends and you can warm up together, and, but when you get to the starting line, having a mask on or a buff or other things and going through aid stations and finishing and doing all this, it's necessary because we all have to look out for each other and keep ourselves healthy and make it through this crazy time we're in, but I just look forward to being able to go to real races again and just walk up and hug people. Cause that's my thing. Yeah. Man. I like seeing people and giving them a hug and being like, Hey, what's up? How are you? Missed you. Um, so we have to all look forward to that stuff for sure. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, super fun talking to you. Um, best to, uh, best to Greg. I saw him scooting by a couple of times in the back yeah, door behind around. you going up and down the stairs. So we should have had him come over and say, hi, I met you guys on the plane that time coming back from the CIM. That was oh, fun. That was but, fun. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, thanks so much for coming on. And we always sign up the shows telling everybody to keep lacing them up, keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight. Such a fun chat with Elizabeth in perfect timing with Boston Marathon registration opening. Really enjoyed our conversation and so appreciated her candor on her struggles with an eating disorder, anorexia, her challenging experiences with therapists, uh, the struggles she had there before finally uh, connecting with a sports psychologist that really helped her um, understand what she was going through, identify her issues, and kind of work together as a team to make it all the way through to the other side. So, so many positive takeaways uh, that she framed in our discussion that I think that could help pretty much anybody in any facet of life, as we discussed on the episode, not just regarding running, but in any areas of your life, you might be facing challenges. So I hope that you can all put some of those talk tracks to use and apply them in your own lives to overcome any challenges that you all might be facing. And um, as I say at, the, at this outro point in every episode, thank you so much. We've been getting some terrific reviews on Apple Podcasts. They help us so much. They're bringing us new subscribers to the show. They help us get great guests like Elizabeth to come on the show and talk about their journey and their inspiring stories. So if you can, please keep it up. It means so much to the Run Chat Show. And we're just happy to have more people joining our family and joining the good positive momentum we have going here. So let's keep it up. And as I always say, at the end of every episode, people, keep lacing them up. Keep getting out the door and always remember to stay in the fight, my friends. Peace out. Talk to you all soon.